good morning, church. What does heaven look like? If you were to close your eyes and picture heaven, what would you see? I'm going to do the thing that a preacher should never do at any point in this message. I'm going to invite you to close your eyes. (laughs) You just got to promise that you're going to reopen them in a moment here, okay? But I want you to go ahead and close your eyes and picture heaven. Close your eyes and get a, get a visual of heaven. What do you see? What does it feel like on your skin? What are the smells, the sounds? What is heaven like? Who do you see there? Who's with you? Who's around you? What's around you? Does it excite you? How would you describe it? Okay, go ahead and open your eyes again. Don't want to do that too long. I might lose some of y'all. So when we close our eyes and we picture heaven, what's it like? If I can be really candid with you for a moment, and I have the microphone so I can be, so I'm just going to tell you, sometimes when I hear people talk of heaven, it's honestly not very inspiring. I I hate to use this analogy, but sometimes when I hear people talk of heaven, it just seems like a bad church service that lasts way too long. There's this common misconception in the world, and sometimes it seeps into the church, that heaven is just boring. That that the real party happens down below, that if you really want to have fun, well, that's... That's down with Satan and hell. Now, that sounds absurd when we say that, but we know there's that joke in the world. But, but I just want to make sure we clear any of that up, right? Clear up any misconception. Because last week we talked about hell. That, that's where we were in the book of Revelation. This week we're on heaven. So we learned last week that Satan is not in charge of hell. Like, hell is not the devil's playground. That's, that's a place of punishment. It's the place of punishment for the devil and his demons, for death and despair, and for all those who oppose God, whether aggressively oppose him or just ambivalently just don't care. That, that's what hell is. And so hell is not on the devil's terms. It's not his place. He's not in charge of hell. God is the one in charge of hell. It's on his terms. He's the warden, if you will. Satan is just the most notorious prisoner there. So let's just erase any notion that hell has anything for us. Let's get rid of the idea that hell would have anything we would want. It doesn't. But hell was last week. Let's get out of hell. Let's get back to heaven. That's where we are this week. A little more pleasant. And, and, you know, sometimes when we talk of heaven and when we talk of this boring, sometimes it just feels like there might be something missing there. In in fact, if, if I were to ask you, if Jesus were to come back, would you be disappointed? Because sometimes there's this idea that there's, there, there's this, this FOMO that we have with Jesus' return, the fear that we're going to miss out on some opportunity, some experience. That, that there's something that we want in this world. And if Jesus comes back a little too soon, we're going to miss that, right? Like John ends Revelation with this. He, he invites us to pray this prayer, come Lord Jesus. And you probably say, yes, of course, Jesus, come. Come Lord Jesus. Just maybe not yet. But for some of you, it's like, well, hold on, because 
maybe if Jesus came a little too soon, you might be disappointed. Well, like if Jesus were to come when you're about to say your I do's for those of you not yet married, would you be disappointed? Maybe if it's later that evening for some of you. Like, huh? If, if it was a moment when you're about to step off the plane or off the boat into that place you've always wanted to go, you're about to embark on the adventure you've always dreamt of, and Jesus interrupts that, are you going to be disappointed? At the time, if, if maybe you're a foodie and, and you're there at the place and, and it's on the fork, you're at that place with that chef and it's that meal that you've always dreamt of, you're about to take the bite and Jesus interrupts that, would you be disappointed? Maybe it's the moment when you're in the delivery room and you're about to meet your kid and Jesus comes back, would you be disappointed? There's this idea that sometimes this world might have more for us, but I just want to address that, like, Listen, if you think this world has anything, anything for you beyond what heaven's going to provide, if you think that there's anything in this world that is better than or more attractive than heaven, then your view of heaven is just way too small. And when we have a smallerish view of heaven, then what happens is we get this overinflated view of this world, of, of where we are here and now. And when that happens, it gets really dangerous because we begin living like we live for the now, that we live for this place, that this is what matters most. Then this matters, it just doesn't matter most. And so we begin living with this view that heaven's boring and this is where it's at and I want to live it up now. And it might not be like a life of grandiose hedonistic sin. For some people, obviously, we see that on TV. We see that around us. You know, But for a lot of people, it's just a a more respectable version of that. And that, that we live in such a way that it's just, we pursue a good marriage and a, and a long marriage and, a, and successful kids and a good job and good health and a nice house and great vacations and, and on and on. And, and, and we dabble into that, that in that life, there might not be a whole lot of change or transformation or evangelism or repentance or confession there might be some churchiness dabbled within, but really, at the end of it, not a whole lot of Jesus. And the problem with that is that when one of those things fails us, and inevitably one of those things, at least one of them, will fail us, will just not work out as expected. And when that happens, disappointment settles in, frustration settles in, hopelessness settles in. We, we have this boring picture of heaven and a disappointing picture of now, and, and we're not sure what to do and despair creeps in and Satan begins to have his way with us and so the problem is when we have a small view of heaven and an overinflated view of this world we're just missing the picture that we're supposed to have and so my fear is that we just don't see heaven correctly we have an inadequate picture of heaven so I want to invite you as John invites all of us to picture heaven with a much richer imagination that's what John is getting at in the end of the book. That's what he's trying to do. Revelation chapters 21 and 22 as he wraps up this letter to the early churches. He's trying to evoke our imagination. The problem for John is he's trying to describe the indescribable. He's trying to express the inexpressible. He's trying to give us a picture of the unfamiliar, but all he has to work with is familiar language and symbols. And so he's kind of stuck there, but I think he does a pretty good job. And I want to invite you to picture heaven with a richer, fuller imagination, to let yourself dream a bit. So 
Revelation chapter 21. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And this picture of newness isn't just that it's new to you, that somebody has given it to you. It's, it's this idea of a totally different kind of thing. Something you've never known or experienced before, different than what you've seen. So a new heaven, a new earth, totally different. For the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Now here, John is evoking emotional language for us. Anybody who's ever gotten married, any husband who stood at the front, any father who's given his daughter away, anybody who's ever been to a wedding, you know the imagery here. When about 21 years ago, when I was waiting at the front of the church for Jen to walk down the aisle, now we had already taken pictures that day. I had already seen her. We'd already had some interaction. I knew how beautiful she is. I mean, I'd seen her in the dress. So, wow. But still in that moment, Right before the doors opened, there was a song that played, and man, I was a mess. I'm already like choking up. The doors open, I see Jen, and I was just, I lost it. And I'm not ashamed to admit it, man. I was a flood. And that's what John's getting at. Like, that heaven is more beautiful than the most beautiful we've ever seen. That, that heaven is more incredible and, and more striking and more awe-striking than than the most beautiful that we can imagine. And, and that's this picture that he's getting at there. And so he continues on. It says, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He'll wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All those things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I'm making everything new. Now, that's not just then and there that he's making it new. The language here in the original language of the Greek is that God is right now in the here and now making all things new, even in this moment. And then he said to me, write this down for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. He also said, it is finished. I'm the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I'll give freely from the springs of the water of life. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. So we have this picture of a newness of life, of new people in a new place, in a new home, with no curse. And we're going to unpack that in just a moment. But just to whet your appetite, just to get you picturing what John is hinting at here, is it's a place where... We are no longer standing in the shadows of death where there's no longer pain and crying and weeping, that there's no longer this nagging ache of growing old, of getting out of bed in the morning and saying, man, my knees never used to hurt like that. My back never used to, I never used to be able to. We don't have to use the phrase, well, I once could. I mean, those things are gone. The vision no longer blurry. The, the aches and pains no longer nagging at us. No more cortisone shots. No, no more distance between family and friends. No longer having to tell somebody, I wish I could have been there but the distance was just too far i wish we could have been with you i'm sorry we missed that time missed that event missed that party missed that moment no more empty table or empty chairs at the table no more lonely widows and widowers no more child-sized caskets for all of that is done and gone and in its place is beauty and hope and joy and perfection. John continues on. 
says, then one of the seven angels who held the seven bowls containing the seven last plagues came and said to me, come with me. I'll show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And so he took me in the spirit to a great high mountain and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Now here in this moment, it, John is doing what he keeps doing throughout. He, he, you know, earlier in the book, we see that he hears lion and he sees lamb. Well, here he hears bride and he sees city. And so we have this picture that the people of God are both city and bride, that this imagery that he's doing. And the city, don't think cities as we think of them. Cities with slums and cities with dirt and noise and congestion, but a city as a place where people would come together in community, that there's community happening there. But we'll unpack that a bit more in a moment. What I want you to see in this moment is the direction that things are moving, that, that we don't go to heaven. Heaven comes to us. The, the city comes down to us, the, the, the king is coming to us, and he's moving towards us. So that's the movement always in scripture is that he is moving towards us, that we don't leave to go there, but heaven comes here. This isn't just some spatial directional kind of thing. This is more than that. This is the fulfillment of what was happening in the incarnation when Jesus left the glory and the splendor of heaven and came into this world wrapped in humanity, wrapped in flesh. And Jesus came down and God himself brought heaven to earth and he kissed earth. And in that moment, heaven was kissing earth. It's the same thing. It's the fulfillment of what Jesus was teaching us to pray when he said, pray this way, that your kingdom come, your will be done, Father God, on earth as it is in heaven, that the kingdom would come here. And we live in this weird between stage of the already and the not yet, where we see the kingdom coming and the kingdom advancing. We see the church doing what God has sent her out to do. We already have stepped into this eternal life, and it has begun for us the moment we surrender to Jesus. But we're not yet in the fulfillment of it. We're not yet in the fullness of the kingdom. We're not yet in the fullness of the beauty and the joy of the eternal life. So we're stuck in this in-betweener time, this already not yet kind of zone. But it's what Jesus was praying, what Jesus was getting at. And we see that this is more than just location and space of what's happening here. It's not like Jesus saying, yeah, get out your phone and MapQuest is saying, or, you know, just ask Siri where it is. And you always got to be careful when you say ask Siri because all of a sudden your phones will start responding to that. But, you know, you ask Siri, well, where's heaven? How do we get there? And all of a sudden... It's given us direction. No, no, no. This isn't space and direction. This is the very central point of it. It's that the defining characteristic of heaven is its essence and its origin, that it's from God to us. That's the movement of heaven, from God to us. And then he goes on and begins to describe the city. That the city wall was broad and high with 12 gates guarded by 12 angels. And the names of the 12 tribes of Israel, God's people in the Old Testament, were written on the gates. And there were three gates on each side, east, north, south, and west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones. And on them were written the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb, God's people in the New Testament. The angel who talked to me held in his hand a golden measuring stick to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. When he measured it, he found it was laid out as a square, as wide as it was long. In fact, its length and its width and height were each 12,000 stadia, about 1,400 miles. Now, 
what God is doing here through John. The, the sim- symbolism in these numbers, right? Is the holy city exactly that? No, no, no. What he's getting at is he's evoking this language from the original audience because the Christians living in the Roman Empire, these, these churchgoers at that time, knew of the vast size, the enormity of the Roman Empire that stretched about 12,000 stadia, about 1,400 miles. This city that is being described here is the same size as the Roman Empire. This empire of oppression and force and power and violence. And here God is saying, but all of that, all of that will be wiped away and washed away because down comes my city, a place of peace and joy and hope and justice and love. And this empire will be overtaken by a city. That's just the city of heaven. It's the size of that whole empire. Listen, you don't have to worry about the Romans because I'm bringing something even better. Now, this picture that he's giving us, the city isn't just laid out as a square. That's a cube. Length and width and height. Now, that's just architecturally preposterous. I mean, how do you have a cube as a city? How can a city be a cube? It can't. I mean, that's 1,400 miles tall as a city. This perfectly shaped cube. There's only one other perfect cube described in all of Scripture. One. The Holy of Holies. The holiest place on earth. The dwelling place of God on earth in the temple. That there in this holy of holy spots where God would dwell, a perfect cube. And and that's where God would dwell. And and we couldn't even get to him. Only one person could enter into the Holy of Holies. And not only once a year, the high priest. And with a whole lot of ritual surrounding it to make sure that they honor the glory of God. But here, here this new heavenly city is being defined and described as the Holy of Holies. A new Holy of Holies. The holiest place. And we dwell there with God. We are there with him. All the time, always, God is accessible to his people in that moment. No longer walled off from us, no longer kept from us. But now we enter in and we are the Holy of Holies and we live in the Holy of Holies. So we have this picture of heaven as the place that we dwell with God in this perfection. The the cube was the most perfect of geometric forms to the people of that time. That they saw it as being a symbol of perfection and completion. And so you have this picture that we are the holy city, the people of God there. That God's people will be perfect and holy and complete. You've got 12 lines on a cube. 12 edges. Times 12,000 stadia gives you 144,000. A number that we continue to see throughout the book of Revelation. A number that symbolizes God's people in their fullness, their completion, and their totality. That what God is getting to is he's saying, listen, all of my people, everyone who should dwell with me will be there with me. Complete and perfect. That everyone's accounted for. That all my kids have come home. And we're all there together. You see, heaven is the place where we live in community with one another and we live in community with God. In perfection and completion. So John is using all this temple language. He's drawing this temple language for us. And then he says this, then I saw no temple in the city. Temple, 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 temple. And then I saw no temple. He's leading us to see that 
like he's getting us to think temple language from the Old Testament. He says, and then there wasn't one. Why? Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. There's no need of a temple there because God is the temple. You can't contain him. And the city has no need of sun or moon, for the glory of God illuminates the city, and the Lamb is its light. Have you ever looked at the sun? I'm not encouraging you to do that. But have you ever looked directly at the sun in the sky? So hot, so bright, it'll hurt your eyes. I was at a track meet yesterday, and I had to keep putting on sunscreen because the sun can burn us. It's so, and it's so far away, and yet it's so powerful to us. I, I don't have as much hair as I once did, so I had to keep putting it on my head. I had to make sure I wore a hat because the sun is so powerful, and it's so bright. I had to wear sunglasses. And we're told that God's presence, his glory, outshines the sun. It outillumines the sun. The, the sun, it's like a candle next to it. I mean, it's, you can't even compare that God's glory is what illumines all of heaven for all of eternity. That there's something powerful and majestic going on in this moment. And then John continues for us. Then the angel showed me a river with the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It flowed down the center of the main street. On each side of the river grew a tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit with a fresh crop each month. The leaves were used for medicine to heal the nations. No longer will there be a curse upon anything. What a beautiful picture. Now, keep in mind, this is metaphor, this is symbolism. But do you hear the echoes of Eden? Do you hear the echoes of the Garden of Eden? Then in the beginning, there was a garden with streams and water and trees and beauty. And in the end, there are streams and waters and trees and beauty. In fact, if you were to read Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and then skip all the way to the end of the Bible and read Revelation chapters 21 and 22, the first two chapters of the Bible and the last two chapters of the Bible. And if you read those, just those four in succession, I encourage you to do that in the next day or two. Just read those four chapters in a row. And you'll see that God gives us this command, this mandate. It's called the cultural mandate is how we refer to it. That he tells us to be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth. What he's telling us in the Hebrew language is go, bear fruit, expand and create culture and music and art and industry and all that. And just, and just make and be and do what humans do and create. And the fulfillment of what he gave us there in Genesis is complete in heaven. In the city of Jerusalem, this, this paradise that was lost because our ancestors took the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we know the effects of that all too well. The sin that came, the death that haunts us now because they ate of that fruit. And so paradise was lost, but now it's restored, it's regained, it's now found. In fact, this word paradise, it's a Persian word that means garden. That the Garden of Eden is to transform into a garden city. And some of you might be a little bit more like my wife and I. A little more country mouse than city mouse, if you will. You, you prefer the, the countryside to the cityscape. But listen, that kind of city and the city that's described there is the kind of place we all want to live. Because there is the tree of life. It, its leaves give healing to the nations, to the people. That, that's the picture of the gospel bringing healing and hope and help. And so we have this picture from one tree to the next. And the problem for us is that we live in a land in between. We, we live stuck between two trees. 
with, with all the problems that came from eating the first tree in the Garden of Eden and the promise that awaits us of the shade and the beauty and the life that comes from the second one, but we're stuck in between them. And the only way to overcome the problem of the first and to realize the problem of the second is to come to the tree between. The between the Garden of Eden and between the Garden City of the New Jerusalem and Heaven stands a cross. And only at that cross do we find the true tree of life. Because on that cross, our Savior died to take death away from us and give his life to us, to wash us by his blood. And after he went to the cross, he rose from the grave to demonstrate his power, the power of his love, to conquer death and Satan and hell, to bring us life and hope for all of eternity. So the only way we move from one tree to the next is to come to the tree between. And that's the picture that John is giving us here. And it paints this picture of a beautiful kind of community that we would all long for. The kind of place where we want to find ourselves, where relationships are no longer bearing the effects of sin. A, a place where there's no anger or guilt or abuse. A place of no bitterness or betrayal or gossip. A place without lying or pride or shame. A place where no one is lonely or left out or marginalized. A place without disunity a place with no arguments or petty disagreements or devaluing of another person. A place with no hoarding and stealing and, and clamoring. A place with no broken bones, broken homes, or broken hearts. And it's not just our relationships between one another that have been restored, but relationship in general with all of creation. That creation is made back to the way it was supposed to be the way it was at the beginning, where there's no danger of violent storms or natural disasters or predatory animals or nasty pandemics and little bugs and things that come at us. A place where we don't have to worry about the prick of a thorn or the poison of a snake because all of creation and all of humanity has been made right with one another in perfect harmony. That sounds like the place I want to be. I think you want to be there too. John goes on, he says, For the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be written on their foreheads. To see his face, this means more than we'll just look at God. Oh, that's what God looks like. Oh, I always wondered, does he have the long white beard, or did he keep it trimmed up? Does he have long flowing hair? Does, he have short? does God bald? What does God look like? It, you know, maybe he looks like this. No, I don't know. That's not what he's getting at is the way we'll see his face. He's alluding back to the time that you might remember when God told Moses to tell Aaron to give this blessing to the people, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. And the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace. Because throughout scripture, face is consistent with blessing. When you turn your face toward somebody, that's a measure of blessing and inviting them toward you. When you turn your face away, that's curse. And so here we have this moment where we will see God and we'll be illumined by his glory and all of evil and death and destruction and all the worst things we imagine are just gone because we stand in the glory illumined by God himself by his face that it shines on us. And it's a picture of this eternal, perpetual blessing. I, I can't even begin to describe it. I, I can't begin to understand it. This eternal never-ending blessing from God as his face shines on us and he looks towards us and we see him smile upon us. This incredible moment of heaven. Friend, when you, when you picture heaven, who do you see? 
Who do you see? Do you see loved ones, friends, and family? Ones you've lost before? It's not bad if you do. But, but listen, if you picture heaven and Jesus is not there, that's not heaven. If you have an image of heaven and God is not present, then that's an imposter, that's a fake, that's a counterfeit. That's not heaven. Because the beauty of heaven is that we will see God and we will look on his face and see him shining towards us with his love, his smile, his compassion overflowing to us and filling us. That that's the picture of heaven. And our hope is that others would join us there. But that's the picture. If you've got a heaven without God, you don't have heaven. He continues. Look, says Jesus, I'm coming soon and I'm bringing my reward with me to repay all people according to their deeds. I'm the alpha, the omega, the first, the last, the beginning and the end. The one who didn't have a beginning and the one who doesn't have an end. And he completed his task. He did what he was supposed to do and he brought it all. And Christ is coming back and his name underscores the completion of his task. And when he comes, he's holding the awards banquet. And this isn't some little participant trophy that he's going to be passing out. This isn't some lame Oscar event. This is the award ceremony of eternity in heaven. That God is going to say, I'm going to dole it out according to what you've done. Now listen, you don't earn a place to heaven based on what you do, but what we do matters. What we do with our time and our money and our resources and our actions and our lives and our attitudes, that matters. It matters to bring him glory. It matters to demonstrate our faith and to demonstrate our commitment to him. And so in that moment, he rewards us for that. And there's an old saying that says, in heaven, everyone's cup will be filled but not every cup will be the same size. And there's not going to be jealousy and bitterness. I'm like, hey, his cup's bigger than mine. Just like, no. like, it's not going to be. But it's the measure of joy we get to experience. For the ones who don't walk with Jesus much now, they don't have as much joy waiting ahead. And for those who surrender it all and give everything to him, their joy is going to overflow. Listen, friend, I don't want you to settle for some small little plastic communion cup kind of cup of joy in heaven. I I want you to go after a cup that that can't even be contained. I I want you to have the joy that's overflowing. You can't even put it in a cup. Have the Hoover Dam kind of faith that just, you got to dam that thing up. I mean, you can't even have a cup. You got to dig a hole in the ground for your amount of joy when you get to heaven. That's how you pursue Jesus now. Because when you get there, it's too late. So you pursue him now, and you got to chase after him now. Because that's how he rewards more there. And then he says this. He says, blessed are those who wash their robes because they will be permitted to enter through the gates of the city and eat the fruit from the tree of life. To wash our robes doesn't mean sin management. It doesn't mean our good behavior. It doesn't mean all the things we would do. It simply means we come to the cross and we wash our robes in the blood of the lamb. We allow Jesus' blood to wash over us and to cleanse us because that's the only way we get in. Listen, I don't know how this is going to sit with you, but I'm going to be really honest with you. And I'm going to ask you to do me and every other preacher I know a favor. Don't make your funeral hard for us. Don't make us figure out how to comfort people because we don't know where you are. Live your life in such a way that you are so surrendered to the Savior that people don't have to hope, they don't have to wonder, but they have confidence knowing where you are. 
Because in that moment, it's too late. I can't preach you into heaven at your funeral. It's too late. We can't hope you into heaven. We can't say, well, she was really nice and she did a lot of nice things for people. He was a really good guy. He made us all laugh. That doesn't count in the grand scheme of things. The only way to enter the city of God is by surrendering to the Savior before you get there. So don't make it hard on your family. Don't make us have to use some stupid cliche to say, oh, he's in a better place now. She's in a better place now. When really we don't know that you are because there's no confidence we have unless you have surrendered to Jesus and the evidence is displayed every day in your life. So friend, live for him, surrender to him, come to the cross, the tree between, and give your life to Jesus because that's the only way you get to walk through those gates in glory. But the good news is, The invitation is open to us all. Revelation 22 tells us that the spirit and the bride say come. Jesus tells us, let anyone who hears this say come. Let anyone who's thirsty come. Let anyone and everyone who desires to drink freely from the water of life come to him. And he who is the faithful witness to all these things, that's Jesus himself, says yes, I am coming soon. And John says amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We want you here. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's holy people. What a great note. Revelation ends with hope. It ends with joy. It ends with love. That it ends with this message that if we simply stay faithful in the middle of the story, we'll be victorious at the end, no matter what comes our way. That Revelation is not a book to be scared of. It's a book of hope. It's a book of healing. It's a book of joy. That for us, we know the king is coming back for his people. And so he's given us a task. We'll sum up Revelation this way. Jesus is coming back. So keep witnessing and keep worshiping. He's coming back. So don't ever stop worshiping, but keep loving on him. Keep searching him. Keep surrendering to him. Keep praising him. Keep magnifying him in your life. And keep letting everyone you know, everywhere you go, that the only way to heaven is if they surrender to Jesus. So you do everything you can to help them find him and follow him and follow him all the way with you through those gates into the city of glory for eternity. That's our job. Keep witnessing, keep worshiping, because the king is coming back. And John invites us to pray this prayer with him, the prayer of invitation to Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And that's good news for us, church, but that's not the only invitation at the end. There's also an invitation from Jesus that if you're thirsty, come to him. If you're hungry, come to him. If you need righteousness in your life, come to him. If you need forgiveness, come to him. If you feel abandoned, come. If you're scared, come. If you're lonely, come if you're hurting come to Jesus because he's there and Jesus message is I'm coming for you so just hold on church just hold on don't give up don't give in just hold on because I'm coming for you that's the message of revelation that Jesus shouts into the darkness into the darkness of this world and the darkness of our lives to the darkest days we may have that some of you are living on the oppression of tyrants around this world some of you you're just feeling the effects of all the nastiness of this world, facing terminal illness and reeling from relational breakups and hurts. And some of you, you're just facing darker days than you ever imagined could come your way. And to that, Jesus says, don't give up, don't give in, hold on, I'm coming for you, church. So stay the course, keep worshiping, keep witnessing. I'm on my way, I'm coming for you, I'm coming for you, I'm coming for you. Just hold on. And to that we say, come, Lord Jesus come yeah that's really good news let's stand and pray let's stand and pray oh Jesus we're so grateful that you are on your way and we don't know when that'll happen we don't know if that's today or if that's way down the road but God 
we are so eager for the day you return. And on that day, we pray that you would find us faithful, that you would find us witnessing and worshiping. God, we pray that if you delay, that your delay will not be on anything because we we just want a better experience on this side of heaven because heaven's going to outshine every experience that we have here. God, if there's anything that delays your return, may it be your patience with those who don't yet know you. And God, may we do everything we can to bring your kingdom here and to help everyone we can everywhere we go follow you with us through those gates of splendor. So God, if you wait, just wait a little bit longer so they can know you because we want them there with us. But Jesus, we long for your return. We long for you to come back. And I pray that today, if any here, any online or with us in this room don't know you, that today would be the day that they surrender, that today would be the day they come to the cross, the tree between, and they surrender their life to find true life, to find freedom, to find forgiveness, to find salvation in you, because it's only in you where it is. And God, may your church always be faithful to the very end. May we continue to worship, may we continue to witness, and may we bring glory and praise and honor to you until that day where we stand in the glory of a beautiful new heaven and new earth. It's in Jesus we pray, amen. Church, I'm gonna invite you to raise your hands. I'm gonna invite those of you who know Jesus, who've surrendered him, who've made your way to the tree between to raise your hands in victory and to sing out in victory of the glorious victory we have in Jesus. And if you don't know him, I wanna invite you to raise your hands and surrender, to surrender now to Jesus, to find new life, to find hope, to find your salvation in him. So let's raise our hands and let's sing.